We can end our studies in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, looking today at Christian discipleship and rejection in Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. And rejection is an everyday occurrence in our society and perhaps experience. Rejection may be in the realm of relationships. A boy likes a girl, but she has no interest in him. It may be in the realm of our employment. You have applied for a promotion, but have been unsuccessful in that and feel rejected by your company. It may be in the area of your peers. Some action you have done or words you have said or a perceived action or misunderstood words has offended your peers and they have shut you out of their friendship group. Rejection is a common experience in our life and society. And today we're considering the second aspect of discipleship taught us in this chapter, Christian discipleship and rejection. Jesus, as the opening words say, he went away from there, as leaving the Sea of Galilee to visit his hometown of Nazareth. Mark doesn't name that village that rejects its most famous son, and perhaps that is a significant point. It is 25 miles from where Jesus was in verse number one to this town of Nazareth. He travels four miles southwest uh, to the large trade route and then goes along that trade route south for seven miles to Magadan and then climbs up through the precipitous cliffs of Arbel and up to the horns of Hatton where he turns south to the town of Nazareth. In verse 1 it's described as his hometown. The disciples are following him, a common facet of rabbis in Jesus' time with their retinue, their group of disciples, learners coming after them. They come eventually to Nazareth, a town on a 60-acre site cut into the, the cliff face in that area of Galilee. A town of just 500 people, all of whom Jesus would have known and all of whom would have known him. He comes home to this little hamlet, this insignificant town in Galilee. Never mentioned in the Old Testament. Not mentioned in the writings of Josephus or the Mishnah, or the Talmud, so insignificant it was. And after the exile in 722 BC, populated by Gentiles. And in coming there, there's a change of mood towards Jesus. In chapters 1 to 4, people have marveled at his teaching. They've wondered at his miracles. But now, in his hometown of Nazareth, he's rejected. In verse 6, it's Jesus who is marveling at the unbelief of the crowd. 
Over our communion in March, we will see that the mighty Jesus in chapters 5 and 4 of Mark's gospel, his authority over demons and danger and death and disease, he has authority in every realm, but he comes here to his hometown of Nazareth. And they're offended at him. They reject him as saviour. And teacher. It begins well in verse 2. He's in the synagogue and he's invited as a visiting rabbi, as the local boy, as the homegrown protege to teach in the synagogue. There is this goodwill that's extended to him initially, but as things progress, the mood changes and Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Of Nazareth. Verse 3 says the locals were offended at him. A, a motif in Mark's gospel which occurs eight times and perhaps you could look at that later on this afternoon. They were offended at him. They were emotionally affected by Jesus and his teaching. He was a stumbling block to him. They were turned against him. They were offended at his ministry, the greatest preacher, the most perfect human being that has ever lived, they rejected Jesus, the Savior. And while this story is about Jesus in his hometown in Nazareth and the unbelief of his family, of his townsfolk, of his community, yet this story is set in the context of teaching about discipleship. Just as we'll see in John's account or experience of being beheaded, that this is a message about the cost of discipleship. So Jesus' experience of rejection in his town is teaching his disciples that what happened to him will also happen to us. And so we're thinking of three lessons about rejection from this passage in Mark. Firstly, a rejection as a disciple of Jesus might be because of our success. The crazy thing about the persecution of Christians in China and North Korea and Nigeria is that they're being persecuted not because they're bad, but because they're good. And this rejection of Jesus here in Nazareth is not because he was a failure, but because he was a success. And the local people rejected him because of his success. And there's two areas of his success that they mention in our text in verse 2. Firstly, his words of wisdom. Many who heard him were astonished. What is the wisdom given to him? Among the Jewish people, there was a, a long line of outstanding scribes and prophets. But Jesus outstripped them all. They were astonished at his wisdom, at his preaching, at the authority with which he communicated God's word. But what irked them was that he had not gone to one of the prestigious 
training schools in Jerusalem, that he had not been educated and molded in elocution and argument and in rabbinic literature. He has great wisdom. He has great words. This astounded them. But what angered them was, where did he get this from? He's just the the local boy, the well-known carpenter of our little town of Nazareth. Today, we might think of it as someone who hadn't attained a, a degree in theology or a master's or a doctorate in theology. Some people will will question the wisdom and the authority of of individuals who've never attended uh, such academic schools. They're listening to the words of Jesus in the synagogue and they're asking, questioning, wondering, doubting, where did he get these words from? Rather than celebrating his success, they are skeptical over his abilities. But it's not just his words, it's his works in verse 2. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Obviously not referring to any miracles in Nazareth which he has done at this time, but what they have heard of the miracles he has done, the calming of the storm, the raising of Jairus' daughter. How are such miracles done by this man? People of Nazareth consider him to be well known. They talk about his siblings, don't they? That he's the the oldest of five brothers. He's at least two sisters. They were well known family within this town of Nazareth. And this is what irks them. This one who has such power now, who has such authority, who has such fame, who has such a following. He was the local one. They're offended at him. They're questioning the source of his power and of his words. And there's a whole study about this, isn't there? Psychologists have analyzed why do some people get irked at the success of other people? Why is there their hatred towards those who have done well and progressed and advanced, often by people from their own community. And the top answer, probably the right answer, is that it shows up their own deficiencies, that they are jealous of the success and achievement of others who began just where they began. They're still stuck in their nine-to-five job. And this other well-known local individual has progressed. They were offended because of him. And what, a, what a lesson there is here for us. Sometimes in a time of rejection within a relationship or employment or among peers, you will think, I must have done something. I must have said something. And sometimes we are the cause of the rejection. But sometimes as here, the fault totally lies with the other person. They're jealous. They're envious. They're in the wrong. Here is Jesus preaching, healing, and they are offended 
at him. For all the young people here, what a wonderful passage for you to master, for you to pour over. Maybe you are at grammar school. Maybe you'll never be at grammar school. But, but here we are taught about Jesus who avoided the academic schools of his day, but possessed a wisdom superior to anything that a grammar school could teach any young person. And that is the wisdom that is valued in this congregation. The wisdom of heaven. The wisdom of the gospel. The wisdom of Christ. Success sometimes can be the cause of rejection. But secondly, our rejection as a disciple of Jesus may get personal. The despising of Christians by the world or in other areas may become personal. It might shift off from being an attack on, on, on other things to attack on your person. And this is what happens in Jesus' experience here. They've got no quibble with his theology in this passage. They're not nitpicking over his teaching. They just don't like him. And they begin to, 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 to move around the edges, the periphery of Jesus' person and, 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 and clutch at straws and create straw men to bring disrepute and bad reputation and turn away people from listening to and following Jesus. See, in the language used in verses 2 and 3, by the people in the town of, of Nazareth, they never call him by name. They keep saying, this man and this and, and him. There's this distance, there's this air of suspicion in their language and attitude towards Jesus. But when they do speak about him, they speak about him in derogatory terms. There's no sin in his life. There's no error in his theology, but somehow they, they, they manage to, to, to cast aspersions on his character. And they do it in two ways. Firstly, they look at his profession in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? Here he is teaching us in the synagogue, has this following, showing words of wisdom, works of power. Is not this the carpenter? The carpenter in Jesus' time, the word includes not only work with wood, but work with stone, work with metal, a wider use of the word in 2 Samuel 5.11 is translated there as stone mason. And in a small village uh, like Nazareth, a, a carpenter would have to have a breadth of skill and ability. Uh, in Jesus' youth, Herod Antipas, he was recruiting craftspeople from surrounding villages to construct his city of Sepphoris, which was built four miles from Nazareth. And maybe Jesus and Joseph worked at this city of Herod Antipas, which was nearby to Nazareth. But they remember him and his craftsmanship and his skill. It shouldn't have been an insult because a Jewish father by the Talmud was required to teach his son a number of things. Teach him the Torah. Procure a wife for him. And instruct him in a manual trade. 
And Joseph had fulfilled that, that role of, of teaching Jesus a manual trade. But in Galilee, dominated by Gentiles, this was a disparaging thing. Is not this the carpenter? He hasn't been to the academic schools. He hasn't been taught by the leading rabbis. He has grown up among us. Just a carpenter. But teaching us. A blue collar worker. In the second century. One of the opponents to Christianity. Celsus. Brings this up as. An issue to question Christianity. That the leader of Christianity. Was but a carpenter. But alongside of bringing up the profession, there's also local rumor. Unbelievers can dig up whole kinds of things to discredit a person. They can throw mud at her, as perhaps they have done at the missing Nicola Bully. And so they do here in verse 3. The son of Mary. The only time this is used in the whole of the Bible. The son of Mary. Of Mary. Perhaps it's used by Mark with that intent that he knows that he is the Son of God. Perhaps that's his intention. But the people here use it in a different way. They use it in a disparaging way. The Son of Mary. Among the Jews, a person was always known after their father's name. The son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But in this case... To disparage Jesus. To draw on the rumour which was around Nazareth. That, that Jesus. There was issues around his birth. Which in their view were, were improper and suspect. That they pull on, on this rumour. It's not this the carpenter. The son of Mary. Rejection. Can become. Personal. They focus on his trade. They focus on a local rumour in their little town. Then the Epsom murders case, this has been done as well, hasn't it? Journalists have dug up of the arrest of Emma Patterson in 2016 by the police for the claim of domestic abuse. And why has that incident been drawn into the whole reporting? It's to cast some aspersions on her character. And here it is with Jesus, teaching, healing. They focus on his trade. They focus on a local rumor about his birth. And we're to be aware of the, the ways of the world, that sometimes our rejection will become personal. That sometimes rumours and issues about ourselves, some true, some not true, will be brought up. You remember the, the centurion with the apostle Paul when he arrested him in Acts 21. He, he said to Paul, are you not that Egyptian that led 4,000 into the wilderness in revolt? Paul says, no, that's not me. And here was Jesus. It's become personal. They can't fault his character, they can't fault his teaching. But such is the, the nature of unbelief that somehow they so twist issues to bring doubt and aspersion on him. 
what an amazing thing it is that people can be face to face with Jesus, can hear his words, can know of his power and miracles, can witness his love and character, and yet still remain unbelievers. And that's a great thing for for those of us involved in outreach and evangelism. We don't have to bring a, a person who's not a Christian to hear the greatest preacher. We don't have to master the, the, the deep arguments to defend Christianity. All we need to do is trust in God's Holy Spirit to use our faltering witness to change hearts. Rejection because of success. Rejection can become personal. But then thirdly, and importantly for us, however young or old we are, how does Jesus deal with rejection? What does he do here? And what are you and I to do here? And Jesus shows us the way by four actions that he takes in this small town of Nazareth, how to deal with rejection in your workplace, among your friends, within your family, by lamenting, by loving, by learning, and by leaving. By lamenting, Jesus does reflect on this rejection. In verse 6, he marveled at their unbelief. He takes a moment. Here he is in his hometown, his family around him, people he'd grown up with who knew him well. And he marvels at their unbelief. He wonders at their rejection. It's natural to cry over rejection, a boy snubbed by a girl he had a crush on for months and eventually got up courage to ask her on a date, deeply feels the rejection. It's evidence of his affection for her. But it's proper to take a moment to reflect on the rejection by lamenting. Secondly, by loving. You see in verse number 5, the word accept. It is a word full of judgment, but it's also a word full of grace. He couldn't do any miracles there except he laid his hands on a few sick folk. They rejected him, yet Jesus shows them his infinite love and his great power in a few miracles that will evidence the identity of his person. There's a good thing to leave a group that rejects us on reasonable terms. If you hear the words from a company that you've applied to for a job, you've not been successful this time, don't threaten to burn down their building. Somehow leave them on good terms. Thank you for the interview experience, you might say, by learning It's good if we can work out why that rejection happened. Was it something in me or was it all something in themselves? And Jesus does this here. He identifies the reason why this people is rejecting him. It's a case of familiarity breeding contempt. He cites not the Old Testament. He cites a common proverb used by Roman and Greek philosophers. 
profit. It's not without honor, except in his own town. Perhaps Jesus deemed this people unworthy of a quotation from the Old Testament. And so he cites this natural revelation, this common understanding among the philosophers. But he identifies why he has been rejected. And he tells the people that the reason is not in him, but the reason is in them. And their over-familiarity and their lack of spiritual perception and his identity and being. That's good for us to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and see things from their perspective. Do we have terrible dress sense, bad breath, an abrasive manner as we evangelize or ask a girl out? Is there something that we are doing wrong? Or is it all their fault? Lastly, Jesus deals with this by lamenting, by loving, by learning, and then by leaving. He marvels. He does a few miracles. He tells them why they've rejected him, and then he leaves them. He doesn't just leave them, though. He moves on. See the last line here. And he went about among the villages, teaching. He doesn't go away and fill himself with self-pity and mourn in the wilderness for a month. He moves on to fulfill the ministry and work and fill his hands with the service of God. The common wisdom among psychologists and psychiatrists and philosophers is to leave a situation in which we've been rejected and move on and fill our hands with good work, a fresh challenge, a new occupation. We've seen the opposite of this, haven't we? And it's not a pretty sight. A farmer whose extended loan has been rejected turns up at the bank and sprays the bank with manure. There's no loving there. There's no learning there. There's no leaving and moving on there. But Jesus gives us the model. Lament the rejection. Love the rejecting party as best you can. Learn why they have acted in this way. Then leave. Move on. And be occupied with something else. Rejection will come to us in our life. Some people will just not like you. And if we sat down and thought about it, we would understand why they don't like us. We are imperfect people. But some people will not like us. Purely and simply. Because we're disciples of Jesus. It's not our manner that they have an issue with. It's our message. That is part of being a disciple of Christ. Always has been. Always will be.